This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This way of living is actually going to encourage those good genes to be turned on and bad genes to be turned off and what that means is you may have genes that are going to predispose you to a disease for instance like cancer or Alzheimer's let's say if you live in a way that's healthy you can ensure or at least try to ensure that those good genes are going to be switched on and the bad genes switched off. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast, the show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. My name is Dr. Rupi. I'm a medical doctor. I also study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me on this podcast where we explore multiple determinants of what allows you to live your best life. And remember, you can sign up to thedoctorskitchen.com for the newsletter where we give weekly recipes plus tips and hacks on how to improve your lifestyle today. On this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Rachel Clarkson, who is a leading nutrigenomic specialist dietitian, and we're going to be talking about eating with your genes. She uses next generation technology and expert analysis to create personalized wellness programs for her clients under the name of the DNA Dietitian. Very catchy. She's also a guest lecturer for St. Mary's University's Masters in Genetics and Nutrition and sits on the scientific advisory board of two health tech platforms. On today's podcast, we're going to be talking about her background in dietetics and why she decided to specialize specifically in personalized nutrition, the basics of what we mean by nutrigenomics. This is something I spoke about in my, wrote about rather, in my first uh, book, and I continue to talk about the impact of food and lifestyle on the expression of our genes. And we go into a bit more detail on that today. We talk about epigenetics and how that relates to food and environmental changes the differences between nutrigenetic tests and deterministic gene investigations that we do within the healthcare service. I think it's really important this part of the podcast because it really does delineate between the different types of testing that there are out there as well as the unsavory practices of some profit maximizing companies that are there sort of preying on people's fear of not knowing exactly what their genomic analysis is and whether it's actually even robust enough to give personalized insights and this is why i think it's very important to have someone talk about this quite honest and openly as rachel does we talk about rachel's approach 
to consulting with patients in clinic and how to personalize diets for things like fertility, obesity, and more. And I also find some really interesting insights into caffeine and coffee in particular, um, things that I did not know before. And you'll, you'll tell I was quite surprised at some of the insights that uh, Rachel gave me. It's an incredibly interesting area of nutrition and medicine. It's definitely something that I think will become the norm in the future. Don't forget, you can check out the recipe I made, Rachel, at the top end of the show on YouTube. I made a a beautiful pea pasta with artichoke. She loved it. It was a delicious recipe and I'm sure you'll like it too. Make sure you listen to the end and I'll sum up the conversation that we had as well as signing up and subscribing to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast uh, and the newsletter on the doctorskitchen.com where we give you recipes every single week. I'll be quiet now and I hope you enjoy this pod. I'm privileged to announce that the podcast today is being sponsored by the NHS and it's about a very, very important topic. The law around organ donation in England has now changed to allow more people to pass on more organs to save more lives. From now, all adults will be considered to have agreed to be an organ donor when they die unless they have recorded a decision not to donate or are in an excluded group. Now, it's really important to understand that you still have a choice if you want to be an organ donor or not when you die and there is no deadline for making your decision. You can record your decision at any time. In addition, families will still be involved. So it's important that you share your decision with them, whatever it is, to give them the certainty that they need to support your decision at a difficult time. Now, To find out more about your choices and to record your decision, please do visit organdonation.nhs.uk. Whatever your decision, make it clear to your family and your closest friends so they know how to honour your decision. There are three things you can do there. You can register your details on the NHS Organ Donor Register. Again, that's organdonation.nhs.uk. Whether you want to donate and you can record whether you want to donate all your organs or select which organs and tissue that you're willing to donate. You can register that you don't want to donate or opt out and you can nominate someone to make the decision for you. Why is this important and why am I talking about it on the Doctor's Kitchen podcast? Well, people from black and Asian communities are more likely to develop conditions such as high blood pressure, diabetes and certain forms of hepatitis than white. This makes them more likely to need a transplant. I've had first-hand experience of this working in renal medicine, in endocrinology, uh, in general medicine. It's a, a stark, stark difference. Black, Asian and minority ethnic patients make up a third of the active waiting kidney transplant list. Now, generally, these patients wait significantly longer for a kidney transplant than white patients. This is a particular issue amongst black, Asian and minority ethnic communities because they are underrepresented among those that have registered as organ donors on the NHS organ donor register, however overrepresented on the transplant waiting list. So you can see that there is a mismatch there. Ethnicity does matter 
Although many black and Asian patients are able to receive a transplant from a white donor, for many, the best match will come from a donor from the same ethnic background, which is why there needs to be a greater drive for people to be more aware about their options and their choices to donate. While some people with a black and Asian background go on to donate when they die each year, it's still not enough to meet the needs of all patients waiting for a transplant from those communities. Now, we know that a younger audience, such as those who listen to The Doctor's Kitchen, in general, are open to donation and are comfortable raising the subject with their family. And this is why we need to educate, motivate and empower them and everyone to have conversations to inform and influence members of their families to come to a decision about organ donation. I also want to point out that specialist nurses are specifically trained to routinely explore with families whether there are any faith or cultural practices that need to be respected and will involve faith representatives in discussions about organ donation if this is requested by the family so when you register as an organ donor you can state on your record that you would like the nhs to talk to your family and anyone else appropriate about how organ donation can go ahead in line with your faith or beliefs it's a really important step in the right direction Um, I'm I'm proud that the NHS has made these decisions and like I said to find out more about your choices please do go to organdonation.nhs.uk and you can record your decision there by registering and visit that website. Thanks for listening. I'm going to be cooking you um, a very simple meal. It's a pasta and I'm not ashamed to say it's basically made up of all the leftovers in my fridge. That's fine. It's the end of the week. <laughs> exactly. It's Friday. I'm sure you're the same as well when you make up. Actually, what's your go-to when, you, when you've got stuff in your fridge? My go-to is basically just make a sheet pan meal. Okay. So I'll just basically put all the veggies onto a large pan, uh-huh. probably have like a piece of fish, nice. bit of olive oil, some herbs, pop it in the oven, it'll be done. Brilliant. I should have done that. Anyway, I'm going to make you a pasta. <laughs> We're going to do simple. Yeah, we're doing simple. Um, I'm going to uh, use some of these beautiful artichokes that I used earlier in the week um, from a jar. You like uh, jarred artichokes as well and water? I love artichokes. High fiber. Beautiful. Yeah. High fiber, prebiotics. Um, we've got peas, a bit of broccoli stems, some mushrooms, a little bit of parsley to finish off with, all in the pan. I've already made this um, pea pasta. I don't know if you've come across this before. Mm. But it's gluten-free. It is, yeah. It's um, made out of 100% pea, but the texture is brilliant, and uh, the the flavour is there as well. And it just it holds itself quite nicely, and it's really high in both protein and fibre as well. So I'm a big fan of that. But then you know you could use regular gluten pasta as well. I'm going to start off with this, and why don't you start by telling us about your background and how you got into dietetics? Because um, I find your chosen field at the moment absolutely fascinating and and i know that i'm going to learn so much on this podcast yeah so i started in manchester doing an undergraduate in biomedical science Mm -hmm. and that almost gave me a well exposure to the world of genetics molecular biology biochemistry basically everything you need as a foundation Mm -hmm. to start as you you know i'm sure you did it in your first year at university as a doctor so That then took me into the area of inflammation where I did a research project looking at inflammation and disease. Mm. 
and then realized that's the underlying cause of all disease. So instead of treating disease, thinking about how do we prevent, that then took me to do a master's in nutrition at King's in London. And during that time, we basically learned all about the molecular biology, biochemistry to do with nutrients at an almost molecular level. And that then took me to a research project in something called epigenetics, where I researched how something called DNA methylation can actually cause differences in the homeostasis of iron. And really what that means in simple terms is do turning genes on and off in the body alter the way that we function, I yeah. guess, yeah. in so simple terms. Yeah, for both positive and negative outputs of your genetic sequence, which is fixed, we can't change that, but it's more about the expression of genes. Yeah. And from what I understand, the heritable characteristics that aren't encoded in the actual genetic sequence itself, which I find absolutely fascinating. Because um, it's the thought that you can change the phenotype or the physical appearances that are passed off in offspring without a change in the actual sequence is just mind boggling for me. And when I first came across that, I was like, wow. Um, and that's why I feel like, you know, we're gonna have to go back to basics quite a bit. Uh, when we go into the second bit after I finish cooking here, because uh, it's like a, a journey for me, and I want to take sort of like the listener on a journey as well. Yeah. Um, I just, as people are probably listening to this right now, I've just popped the artichokes in a large um, saucepan with some olive oil, and I'm just going to go in with all the mushrooms. It's kind of like a one-pan wonder sort of meal where you just throw everything in it with a little bit of seasoning. So, when you were doing your masters at Kings. Um, how long was it, first of all? It was around 18 months. Okay. Yeah, 18, around 18 months, I think. 18 months. Yeah, because that was the first one. Oh, that was a <laughs> And then I really thought about the importance of being able to actually apply my nutritional knowledge yes. to a patient yes. in order to treat medical disease, disease and also healthy individuals. Yeah. So then I went on to do another course at Kings in Dietetics. Mm -hmm. And I learned exactly that along with clinical placements in a few of London's really great hospitals. You probably, I'm sure you probably worked in them, yeah. uh, like St. Thomas's, Imperial. No, I've never worked Royal at St. Thomas's. I haven't, no? I've been to Royal Marsden as a medical student. We did some uh, oncology placements there. Um, Imperial I've done a bit. I mean, I still work in West London and stuff. So, so yeah, oh, nice. So you were, you were all over when you were doing your master's and stuff? Yeah, I was very lucky. I got placed in some of the most local and some of the most well-regarded when it comes to research and teaching. So I was yeah. very happy. And when you were doing your research in inflammation, yeah. how was that? How is that? Is that still influenced like the way you practice now in terms of like, you know, what you see as the root cause of yeah, so the research was really looking at inflammatory pathways mm -hmm. and I guess the literature that was needed in order to put it together um, definitely has an impact in the way that I feel regarding lifestyle mm -hmm. and how we should be really looking to move more, eat more plants, get more sleep, mm -hmm. de-stress, 
and the effect that inflammation or anti-inflammatory anti really can have on the body and, and disease pro progression. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think sure. like inflammation is this really misunderstood, banded around term that people get quite fearful of. And it's kind of perpetuated this like uh, supplement industry that's there designed to capitalize on people's fear of being yeah. inflamed or having, you know, anything that's kind of regarded as detrimental to their health. Whereas in reality, inflammation is one of the most important processes. And we have to respect the fact that we need inflammation in our bodies to survive, to respond to stresses as a means of communicating with our immune system and signaling to the cells that, we, that need to come and, you know, clot blood or fight pathogens and, you know, a whole host of other issues. But inflammation is, in its success is something that is the root cause of a whole host of different conditions. And that was really, like, for me, pretty special when I realized, oh, there's an underlying link to a lot of these things that we're seeing in clinic. And it's that chronic inflammation that we really see the progression of disease. It's not the acute that, like you said, we need in order to function in a healthy state day to day. Mm. So amazing. And so, like your background, like how, like why did why did you go into dietetics? I'm always fascinated into like finding out the backstories behind people and like why they ended up, you know, into the professions that they're they're in. I guess. Being very honest, when I started as a student in Manchester, I really fell into the student lifestyle of maybe not cooking a lot, eating maybe quite a few takeaways, maybe yeah. having a few too many drinks. It's all right passage though, isn't it? Yeah, it's the, it's the norm. Yeah. And then I realized, wow, my body's changing. My energy levels aren't great. I didn't have great focus. And so I thought, along with t doing the research project in kind of inflammation and thinking about the association between lifestyle and, and really health, I thought I must do something about this. So I became quite obsessive regarding my diet and active lifestyle. But unfortunately, I wasn't educated in nutrition. I just read a few books. I'd read a blog, I'd read blogs, yeah. I'd kind of look to these people who I thought were experts for advice and I really followed that. And that meant restricting quite a lot of the things that we should be eating. And actually when I look back at what that resulted in, I was low in energy, I was low in weight. I looked and felt as I was, which was malnourished. Right. So that wasn't good. Yeah. So then I really understood the importance of nutrition. What were you cutting out, sorry, before? So, I, I mean, I cut out dairy, I cut out gluten, I cut out animal products. Mm. I didn't think about the importance of incorporating nutrients in other sources of food yeah. that I would be naturally missing. Mm. And, you know, it was crazy. I was listening to my personal trainer, who told me that I had to eat steak for breakfast sometimes. So that was the initial thing. And then I was like, I don't feel good eating steak for breakfast. So then I looked elsewhere that said that I couldn't eat meat and animal products. So I cut everything out. It was, it was a crazy time. So proper yo-yo yeah. from like different, yeah. It was just exactly that, a yo-yo. And I think that that's what many people really suffer with, that yo-yo dieting, kind of jumping on anything that is 
selling them health and wellness and unfortunately it can really have detrimental effects unless you do it in a in a healthy way with a trusted individual yeah yeah so, so how, how did you break out, out of that pattern then so then i applied for a nutrition masters right. and that's when i actually realized first of all that a masters in nutrition was not going to tell you what to eat to get healthy yeah yeah i actually you know ended up in london first day and we were given the syllabus which was all about molecular biology, biochemistry, you know, everything that I've basically been doing in uh, biomedical, uh, biomedical science, but in a nutritional basis. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was then when I realized the importance of nutrients for the body, mm. normal body functioning, and really started to eat in a way that was healthy and recommended for the population. So I was, you know, eating, more plants i was incorporating lots of different proteins whether that be plant proteins and also animal proteins just thinking about moderation really and yeah i felt really great so and so that's kind of what spurred you on into like you know digging into nutrition at a, a deeper level and looking into genomics as well which i i find fascinating but it's a bit of a murky field right yeah so towards the end of the nutrition masters we were encouraged to find a topic that we were interested in okay. where we would carry out a research project in the laboratory and write up a paper mm. so naturally i was very interested in genetics because i'd already done it in my undergraduate mm -hmm. during the the biomed yeah and so that's when i looked into the epigenetic modification of the iron sensing genes and really looked at genes turning on and off so that was, was my that, was first your, exposure. Was that your paper on hepcidin? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so we right. published that, Epic. which is yeah, yeah. pretty exciting. I had a quick read of it. I, 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 <laughs> I gotta admit, I, I haven't finished the paper. I pretty much just read the abstract, but I don't know if you could summarize it because it sounded really interesting. We determined that further research needed to be taken into the methylation of genes that encoded the iron sensing pathway, mm -hmm. which basically means when we think about homeostasis of iron, so when somebody has low levels, they will sense that they have low levels in the body and hepcidin is a hormone yep. that is released into the body. And basically we just worked out that lifestyle modifications would cause methylation of these genes that encode for their iron. It's yeah. very complicated and I don't expect anyone no, to that's understand. A really so hepcidin is found in the gut, if, I, if I'm correct? Yeah, I mean, it's all to do, the sensing actually occurs in the liver. So, so when you have low iron levels, yeah. your hepcidin is upregulated mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and that changes the absorption of iron. Yeah, it turns kind of things on, mm -hmm. like you need to absorb more. Yeah. And then when it's too high, we don't, we don't absorb as much because our body knows that we're sensing we've got enough. Exactly. And so what were the lifestyle factors that you found were uh, particularly detrimental to iron? Because I don't think this is talked about enough. We think of iron in a very binary sense in terms of the different types of iron, the pathological causes. For women, it's like, you know, menstruation loss, heavy menstruation. Um, for a whole bunch of other causes, it could be dietary. But actually, th there's a lot more to this story that I think we as practitioners are given credit for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we specifically looked at cancer liver cells. Mm -hmm. 
And our recommendation for future research was to find out exactly which lifestyle modifications need to be taken in order to turn things on and off. We'd, we weren't exactly sure what, we just knew that methylation was the mechanism that caused things to be turned on and off. So future research Future research, <laughs> pretty much the conclusion yeah. of every paper I've ever read. <laughs> we need to do more research in this. Exactly. Okay, fine. We're going to switch gears and go back to uh, cooking now. Um, so as you've seen, I've just uh, piled in all the veg, the mushrooms, bit of the artichoke, um, the stems of the parsley, actually, I forgot to mention, I threw in there as well because the stems are a bit woody. Mm -hmm. You don't want to eat them raw. Um, put it, uh, put the, uh, the green uh, pea pasta in that I've cooked, a little bit of olive oil. Uh, and as you like some heat, I'm going to put some red chili flakes on top. Not flakes, sorry, um, slices. And you can give me your honest opinion of this. I honestly won't be offended if any constructive criticism will be really appreciated. So oh, always honest. Always, always honest, honest, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited for the broccoli. Yeah. I was telling you before that broccoli has been shown to increase the detox of, well, to basically turn genes on that are to do with detoxification in the body. Yeah, it's really interesting so. that I, I came across a paper um, based in China where they actually use broccoli sprout extract and they think it's because of sulforaphane changing the methylation factors but um i think a lot of people think uh, in too much of a reduction so when it comes to detoxification mm -hmm. it's a very important natural mechanism yeah. but it's supported by micronutrients mm -hmm. found in food um mm -hmm. those phase one and phase two enzymes that we can talk about a bit later if you like thank you get into it <laughs> <laughs> you can dive in here you go ladies first yeah <laughs> Try to get a bit of everything. Honest opinion. Okay. Honest we need some artichoke, obviously. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 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 What does it need? Is it balanced? Does it mm. need something? Is it lacking? It's really good. Good? Mm. Good. She loves it. Great. <laughs> How was your lunch? It was delicious, thank you. Good. Right I'm, feeling, answer. <laughs> I'm feeling very full with all the fiber. Yes, yeah, a lot of fiber, yeah. Well, hopefully, like, yeah, light lunch. Um, so I wanted to get back to the reason why I asked you to come on the pod, uh, because like you said earlier, you've done training, your BSE, you've done a master's um, in, uh, in nutrition, you've done some extra training with Monash University, University of Toronto, in the subject of nutrigenomics. You're also a lead educator in Europe for nutrition professionals, and you're a guest lecturer for all these different nutrition and genetics um, uh, conferences, you're the perfect person that I want to talk to about this subject, which is marred by um, a bit of, it's a bit murky. And we, we talked about that in the break about how it's an unregulated industry. It's very new. People are often afraid of new industries. And I'll be honest, I was skeptical of the idea of nutrigenomics um, initially, perhaps due to the practices of some companies that are there to maximize on people's fear of you know, what they should be doing or what, what is lacking from their diet. But the way you practice, I think, is exceptionally responsible and it's the way we should be using this incredible tool. Before we go into that, <laughs> I think I want to take the user on a journey because um, a lot of people would assume that I know absolutely everything about nutrigenomics in the same way people expect general practitioners to know everything about gynecology, psychiatry, gastroenterology, cardiology, et cetera, et cetera. And I am just as ignorant as most people when it comes to the subject matters of gene, uh, uh, nutrigenomics and uh, epigenetics. I know a bit, 
perhaps not enough to practice in the same way you do. So why don't we take the user on a journey and just go way back, <laughs> go way back. Yeah. And we could start off with like, what do we mean with the terminology of a gene and mm -hmm. epigenetics? Yeah, so good question. And I always like to start from the beginning because you're absolutely right. We're not expected to know these things. It's not language that we use on a day-to-day -day basis, but from a health point of view, when we're talking about genetics and nutrition, I think that it's important to think about, well, what is a gene? So a, a gene is a part of your DNA that basically has information that tells your body what to do, what to make, what protein it should be making. And we all actually have around 99% of the same genes as human beings. And 1% of that is actually different, which is what makes me and you look very different. I was going to say black hair. Is it black? I'd say dark brown. Dark brown. I'm very like, dark brown. I'm light brown. Um, you know, you've got brown eyes. I've got blue eyes. Gray in some lights. But <laughs> these are, you know, physical traits that are passed down from our parents. Now, these physical traits make us look different on the outside we also have traits on the inside that are very different. And that's really what the study of nutrigenomics looks at, the different variations of the same genes, which alter the way that we respond to nutrients and the food. So we just ate the same pasta mm -hmm. with artichokes, mushrooms, broccoli. Well, me and you have eaten the same meal in maybe different quantities, but similar. If we were to look at how much of each nutrient has been absorbed, metabolized and utilized, say an hour, two hours, three hours from now, we'd actually have different levels in our, in our blood. And that's all to do with our variants of mm. these genes. Sorry if I went on a bit of a tangent. No, no, no that's, that's perfect. Because I think intuitively, when I'm listening to you explain that, it's obvious. It's like, yeah, 100%. There's so many different reasons as to why I might metabolize something completely different to you, both environmentally and both at a genetic level as well, right? So, uh, so when we talk about like, you know, heritable traits and traits that are influenced by it, the environment, what do we mean by environmental factors? Like what are those sort of differences in, in how, we, how, how we express our, our genes? Like what do we mean by environmental factors? So as, you know, you have this podcast, you have Instagram, you write books all around how we should be eating and living in a healthier way. And really, when it comes to genetics, it's the part that epigenetics has to play. So environmental factors around how we eat, how we sleep, our stress, how much we move, how much sunlight we get, the pollutants in the city. These are all environmental factors which will have a huge impact on how our genes are expressed. Mm -hmm. And that can come from a few ways. We like to talk about DNA methylation. Mm -hmm. So the adding of methyl group, as you probably know, or histone modification. Mm -hmm. These are all epigenetic modifications of genes which can turn things on and off. So the methylation, if you imagine a, um, like a plastic, uh, a rubber band on a pencil, literally on one section of the pencil, it will be covering part of the pencil. Mm -hmm. 
So that part of the pencil wouldn't be able to be expressed. If you imagine the pencil as your gene Um, and the histone modification, well, our our DNA is actually wrapped around those histones and that's why it's able to be in such a condensed um, shape Mm -hmm. and it's tightly bound. Now the histones actually, well, epigenetic modification can relax these histones in order that the gene can actually be expressed because it's actually shown. Okay, so I love that analogy of the pencil. It's making me think about it a little bit clearer. So the pencil is the gene. The rubber band are the histones. Like a methyl group. The methyl group, sorry. And those will essentially, when they're covering that bit of the pencil, that tiny bit of the pencil, that's either turning the gene expression on, off. Okay. Yeah, because it's covering it. Gotcha, okay. Fine. Yeah. So if you just think about all of the healthy recommendations around sleeping, you know, seven to nine hours a night, eating a diet that's, well, we could go into that for days, but, you know, high in plants, adequate hydration, just a varied healthy diet, moving more, decreased stress. This way of living is actually going to encourage those good genes to be turned on and bad genes to be turned off. And what that means is you may have genes that are going to predispose you to a disease, for instance, like cancer or um, Alzheimer's, let's say. Mm -hmm. If you live in a way that's healthy, you can ensure or at least try to ensure that those good genes are going to be switched on and the bad genes switched off. Exactly. So I, I, I remember writing a chapter on this in my first book um, where we're talking about food as information and how the information encoded in, in food interacts with our very existence, the very core of our existence. And the impression I had at the time was, you know, largely plants, uh, lots of fiber, plenty of things like sunlight um, and the lifestyle 360 factors that I talk about, social cohesion, uh, clean environment, um, uh, sleep, hygiene, etc. These all have been shown in studies and in, in GMAPIC studies to turn the positive expressions of genes uh, on and, and uh, the negative ones like tumor promoter genes off. If we know what the positive lifestyle factors are and the positive dietary traits are, what is the utility of genetic counseling in terms of genetic, in terms of nutrigenomics specifically? And, and perhaps we should take one step back and actually talk about the different types of genetic testing available out there? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm probably going to take it back even a little step regarding why look at genetics. You know, over the last 10, 20, 30 years, there's been a huge rise in these chronic diseases. And so many would say, well, our genetics haven't changed So why look at genetics? Mm. It's actually environmental factors that have changed maybe around us. So maybe we're we're living in an unhealthy way. Now, yes, that is true. Environmental factors have probably increased the likelihood of people developing these diseases. And that maybe is shown with these increases. But some people aren't getting these diseases. And so that sheds a light on, well, 
maybe we have to look at genetics in the sense that maybe these environmental changes have actually unmasked the genetic capability or risk factor of someone developing these diseases. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So our weaknesses are exposed in light of the environmental changes mm, of, mm. Our, of our gene yeah. makeup. And, and I suppose you could also look at it in the sense that if you look at observational studies that are looking at nutrients associated with health outcome, if you look at enough of these, you'll see that there are almost different outcomes depending on the different studies that you look at. So literally, if you have enough observational studies looking at nutrient versus health outcome, you will basically see that some are saying that, say, for instance, caffeine is going to increase your risk of a heart attack. And then others are going to say that it's not. You've got saturated fat. It's going to kill you. It's You've got others saying it's, it's not. Same, you know, there's so many studies out there. And really initially we thought that those people were outliers and scientists would think how do we you know get around publishing this maybe some actually in quite a biased way wouldn't publish outlying results but what we do know is that these aren't just outliers it's actually just taking things back to genetics so when you look at whether something whether a nutrient is increasing or decreasing a risk of a disease. Mm -hmm. When you look at the genetics, these people have different variations of genes that are actually coding for the metabolism of these nutrients, which alter the, the health outcome. Gotcha. Okay. And so when we talk about the different types of testing now specifically mm -hmm. to reveal the differences in metabolism as, as one example, the, the, the way we uh, treat different elements in our lifestyle uh, and our environment, what are the, the different types? Yeah, good question. So it's easy for people to get almost confused with genetic tests or for people to think of a genetic test as one test mm -hmm. but actually it's really important to define the difference between a, a disease risk gene and a modifier or metabolic gene mm -hmm. so there are some companies out there that are testing to see if you have a risk of developing a disease for instance so a, a disease risk association now you know Angelina Jolie, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I don't know her personally, unfortunately. <laughs> but if Angelina so, yeah. is listening, actually, she's a regular listener. Yeah, so. I'm sure she is. Yeah. She will enjoy the shout out. <laughs> so, Angelina. <laughs> so if you remember back, she actually was in the press because she tested positive for the BRCA1 mm -hmm. gene for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And it was quite public that she ended up taking a pre like precaution mm -hmm. and actually having both bre both breasts removed mm -hmm. in order to minimize the risk of her developing the disease. And that meant that quite a lot of, well, the world really, women went and got tested for this BRCA1 gene. And if they tested positive, they maybe took precaution. 
now and, and maybe took those precautions similar to Angelina Jolie. But if they didn't test as positive, they initially thought they hadn't got a risk of developing the breast cancer. But what most people don't realize, and most of those women didn't realize, is that BRCA1 is only really representative of 10% of all breast cancer cases. So the other 90% of risk is to do with many other genetic factors amongst other things. And so it's almost, almost false reassurance. And so I think it really has to be taken into consideration when testing for um, disease risk, whether it's warranted. I think for rare diseases that we can test for genetic pre uh, kind of risk, 100%. But when it comes to these, you know, non-communicable diseases, the, the, the evidence isn't robust enough in order to to make these predictions. And so that's really important to understand. And also we were talking about the anxi anxiety that could be caused for individuals and families around, you know, how would it make you feel if you were told that you're at increased risk of, you know, such and such cancer mm -hmm. or, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's really got to be taken into consideration. And a lot of these testing companies don't have genetic counselors who can really explain what that means and, yeah, counsel people through the, the hard emotions that they and their families may experience. So that's really important to distinguish that as a, uh, a disease risk yep. test. But then the exciting test comes in and that's regarding modifier genes. These are metabolic genes that you can actually make actionable recommendations from. So these genetic tests are basically, if, we, if I bring you back to the studies looking at whether a nutrient has a positive or negative effect on a health outcome, we're looking at those variations of the genes which cause this positive or negative effect depending on the person. The nutrigenomic analysis can really identify what variation of a gene somebody has in order to predict how they'll respond to a certain nutrient. So do you want me to talk about a Please particular do. Yeah, one? So yeah. I mentioned caffeine before. First of all, because... I love coffee yeah. and I think that, you know. I'm a big fan of coffee. Like ever since I came back from Sydney, you know, where I was, <laughs> I, I basically uh, became a coffee snob and I learned to love the process, the ritual, the taste, the history behind it. Before that, I was just drinking regular mocha, which uh, I, um, I mean, nothing against mocha drinkers, but I just, I look back at it now and I'm the kind of person who enjoys uh, the long black, um, mm -hmm. the just a purest sort of coffee with, you know, where you can taste the notes and everything. And it sounds pretty, yeah. pretty pretentious, but that's that's no, me. No, not coffee. at all. Correct me if I'm <laughs> wrong. Is a long black 
not just an Americano. No, Please teach they're very me the difference different. Because very different. somebody did ask me to order a long black the other day and the waitress said, oh, Americano. And yeah, I said, I don't yeah. know. So, so please. it depends which coffee store you go to. If you go to a proper like Australian coffee place, they will know the difference. An Americano has got slightly more hot water in okay. than a long black. A long black is like a double um, shot of espresso mm -hmm. topped up with hot water. Sounds similar, very different. If you I order, mean, it sounds like an Americano I mean, to me. It sound like an Americano, <laughs> but it's there, there is a clear difference because Americanos they tend to be served in like big, big cups, mm -hmm. um, and uh, a long black is in a shorter cup, it's like an eight ounce cup or something. Okay, like that. next time. Next time, yeah, you yeah. Make me one. I'm worried that I've got that wrong and someone's going to correct me now. I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah, no, no I, I, I'm sure. Well, I'm happy with my Americano, but things yeah. might change once I try a long black. Yeah, Who knows? and I'm definitely sensitive to caffeine. Sorry, that was mm -hmm. the last thing I meant yeah. to say. Like I know without having to have my uh, mm. my, my genes analyzed that uh, I, if I drink coffee after 12 p.m., uh, I definitely struggle to fall asleep and okay. the quality of my sleep changes. This is really interesting. So I'm glad you brought this one up because when people find out that I'm in this field, especially, you know, if I'm out for dinner or, you know, just anywhere, they'll say, oh, I know that I'm really sensitive to caffeine because of exactly that. Mm. And it's interesting because the jittery effect that caffeine gives or even the ability to not be able to sleep so that kind of high stimulant effect actually doesn't have anything to do with how well you metabolize caffeine okay. it actually has to do with a receptor in the brain okay so depending on the variant of this receptor of the uh -huh. gene that encodes for the receptor the caffeine for instance in yourself will most probably be bound really tightly to that and so you're going to have that stimulating effect for much longer now that doesn't actually translate into whether caffeine is good or bad for you from a health point of view so we're talking about caffeine specifically right now. This can be in coffee or tea or wherever you find caffeine. Now, it's interesting. This was one of the first nutrients that was studied in nutrigenomics, probably because it's the world's most widely consumed stimulant, I think. Well, they first of all found that caffeine intake had a almost J or U-shaped curve when it came to kind of health outcomes. So it was recommended that a moderate amount of caffeine was okay. And actually, if you consume more than that, maybe not. So the, you know, the recommendation around the world, I think it's 400 microgram. I know that it is similar to that in the UK as well. So that's around four cups of coffee is the safe limit. Which to me sounds like a lot. Yeah. yeah, I think really important to note, 400 micrograms is not the same as four cups of yeah. coffee from the coffee shop. Yeah. It's almost like the maybe instant coffee or a espresso, let's say. So uh, I like to say that 100 micrograms is around one espresso. And that's how you can kind of do the math in your head. Two lung blacks. Two lung blacks, okay. <laughs> so when... The researchers actually looked into this further from a genetic point of view. They actually found out that it 
was well it really depend depended wh- which variation of the gene you had and to break that down even more caffeine is consumed and it's broken down by an enzyme okay now an enzyme is a protein and the protein in particular is coded by a gene okay now it's the variation of that gene which alters how much of the enzyme you have so we like to put people into groups so if you have one variation of this and en- of this gene you're a fast metabolizer and if you have the other genetic variation you're a slow metabolizer so this study actually showed that the fast metabolizers of caffeine were actually breaking down caffeine very very fast and so it wasn't lingering in the body mm-hmm. and this meant that they didn't have an increased risk of a heart attack mm-hmm. they actually were protecting themselves against a heart attack by consuming caffeine which is quite oh wow crazy yeah yeah is that yeah. explained what sort of that one of the explanations for the u-shaped impact of slightly yes uh-huh. but we almost we <laughs> yeah <laughs> We dissected it even further, basically, and those fast metabolizers were a protective effect. And we think that's because the caffeine was metabolized quite quickly before it maybe uh, got to the cardiovascular system. And we believe that, or scientists believe that the other components found in, say, coffee, for instance, the polyphenols, actually had the beneficial effect. Mm. Now, on the other side of the table, we have the slow metabolizers. That's me. Mm-hmm. And um, probably me. Might be <laughs> you, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the slow metabolizers, we actually struggle to break down the caffeine very quickly. And so it lingers in the body and it actually has a increased risk well an increased effect on our blood pressure mm-hmm. and actually if slow metabolizers consume more than two cups of coffee a day they're actually putting themselves at higher risk of a heart attack so it's really important to distinguish whether you are a high risk mm-hmm. or well, a fast metabolizer or a slow metabolizer but it's not enough to think oh coffee makes me jitter and keeps me up at night because like i said it's a different mechanism yeah well that's fascinating because i think i mean for if i'm honest slightly scared (laughs) about the heart attack element but um i think it definitely puts into uh it 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 makes me understand a little bit more about why nutrigenomics is quite important because i think you know i wouldn't have thought that i of you know cbd risk and, and heart attack risk on the basis of those things and i think there's a lot more to the story beyond just the impact on that particular enzyme but um that is interesting that's super interesting and when you look at the study i think it was around you know two thousand people it was a harvard professor that actually was involved as well with this and they determined the amount of coffee that people were drinking from free food frequency questionnaires but they also took into consideration other lifestyle factors like smoking physical activity amongst other things so it was a very very high quality study and researchers also replicated this in europe and found that it didn't just increase risk of heart attack it increased risk of blood pressure which you can imagine obviously is the 
the first. And then other researchers actually looked at how it can also have a huge impact on your kidney function as well, which was really exciting research. I can send you that paper. Yeah, please do. I'd love to to share that on the podcast notes. I mean, so the the tests that we're talking about now are distinct from the deterministic genes that we were talking about earlier uh, in terms of deterministic genetic um, tests out there. So we're not talking about things like APP in Alzheimer's. We're not talking about, you know, uh, Huntington's. Uh, We're talking about the huge, huge selection of minute variations in our genetics uh, sequences that may lead to increase or reduce risk of a number of different factors. Because of the way that you are metabolizing certain nutrients. Exactly. Yes. And so we're talking a bit about in the break, how do you determine what, I mean, that was a perfect example of like, you know, uh, uh, a, a, a variation and how that leads to different effects that you can study. How do you determine which variations uh, that you're going to test for and how much evidence does there need to be before one puts that in a panel that you subject to a patient? Really good question. And I think that that's what a lot of people are wondering when Mm. they are almost being skeptical. And it's a really valid question because you know, everything needs to be backed by robust evidence. And that means that when you're looking for a test, so whether that, whether you're a practitioner looking to use a test in clinical practice, or whether you're a, you know, a a member of the public who wants to seek insights into your genetic capabilities when it comes to nutrient metabolism, you need to ensure that the test actually only has genetic markers that we have evidence for. And what that really means is there are quite a lot of tests out there who are presenting you with hundreds upon hundreds of genetic markers that don't necessarily have a lot of science to back up the recommendations. Um, That's important because you're coming to this science wanting answers of how to improve your health, how to improve your likelihood of being as healthy as possible and preventing disease. Well, that's not going to be great if you're taking a test that recommendations are being given not based upon evidence. Absolutely. And we were talking about how some of the evidence created for some of these SNPs, and we should define exactly what we mean by SNPs, um, are based on animal studies uh, and rat models and and different uh, models that are completely different, obviously, to the human models. And you need to have, you know, that that degree of transparency before you subject patients to making lifestyle changes in you know, with the expectation that the there's been sufficient um, work done on them before mm. they had them, they pay mm. for them. Absolutely, and I think that because it sounds so scientific, mm. you know, the area of nutrigenomics, and they're quite fancy biotech companies, mm. quite polished with their branding, and they have a face that maybe you want to trust. You do trust them, and it is unregulated unfortunately and it has almost given the industry a bad name because at the very beginning science just wasn't really being used by a few of these companies especially not robust science and and yeah it's 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 quite sad to think that money has been valued by 
biotech companies over patient safety mm. because at the end of the day that's what this is this is people's genetic information and if it's not translated and spoken about in a first of all easy to understand format mm. and second of all with recommendations that are based on science that's worrying and so correct me if i'm wrong but there's tens of thousands of different uh SNPs, so mm -hmm. single nucleotide polymorphisms. Polymorphisms, yeah. 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 What is, what is <laughs> that in layman's terms? It it's is, a yeah. tongue twister. Yeah. It's basically, you know, areas of, well, it's just, we call them SNPs. Yeah, They're yeah. Basically, um, we talked about genes before being part of our DNA and genes encode for, they're like, just think of them as the instruction manual for your body to make things. So these SNPs, these single nucleotide polymorphisms, it's a longer tongue twister, are actually just variations of these genes, which we know to alter the way that you individually respond to, to nutrients. And when I say respond, it sounds a bit- It sounds you know, quite drastic, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Respond basically means how you absorb something, how you utilize it, how you metabolize it, how you transport it. We know that people do it very differently. For instance, you know, I, I'm predisposed to low levels of B12. And what that means is my genetic variant of the gene that encodes for the enzyme and the transporter doesn't do it very well. So in simple terms, I need to eat more foods rich in B12, you know, I need to be either ensuring that I'm eating, you know, animal products, or if I'm, you know, going to want to have some, some brown stuff. Yeah, yeah. Nutritional yeast. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, even a, a, a B12 spray. It's that translating of quite complicated genetics into that easy to understand everyday dietary recommendation that will have that impact on say making sure that my red blood cells aren't um you know unhealthy and i'm not going into megablastic anemia and i can metabolize food well absolutely and so correct me if i'm wrong these SNPs, there's tens of thousands of them that we've identified, some of which have evidence based on how we can utilize the information to direct lifestyle changes most of them don't have that amount of information. You actually advise companies on which SNPs that we should be actually using mm -hmm. based on the evidence base. But as you said, it's an unregulated industry and there isn't mm. a, uh, a standard across all companies that offer these different mm -hmm. nutrigenomic tests. Out of the ones available, how many do you actually test for and which ones do you think are actually useful in clinical practice? Good question. I think that... Personally, sitting on the advisory board of a few of these companies, I have had to almost stand up and say, you're testing way too many SNPs that we don't have the evidence for. At least we have a little bit, but we don't have maybe robust. We should maybe think about slimlining this to make sure that we're only giving these recommendations based on these SNPs that we have evidence for. So you're right. It is unregulated and we need someone to come in and say that you are only allowed to use SNPs that are actually going to be useful yeah. and be clinically safe to give recommendations on. But you're absolutely right. There isn't that regular, reg, 
regulation. <laughs> there is yeah, no yeah. regulation. <laughs> yeah. um, and me personally, I, I mean, without going into detail, there are many databases on the internet mm. that actually have a whole host of every single yeah, SNP, know. you know, mm. after the Human Genome Project, mm. it's actually wildly available, wildly, mm. sorry, widely mm. available on the internet to everyone. And if you're uh, someone who can translate that information and also pair research to that, then you're kind of able to weigh, weigh up whether that SNP should be included or not. Um, and then I think the the question comes in that many people will, you know, ask, well, we're not there yet with the science. If we don't have all those SNPs, then we can't, you know, safely use it in clinical practice. But at the end of the day, we, we do have robust evidence for many of these SNPs. And so I take you back to those recommendations regarding coffee. It's, you know, caffeine. Is it safe that the, you know, that 400 micrograms is is actually classed as a safe limit for the population when actually half of the population are going to be at a 37% increased risk of a heart attack if they do consume that amount. So I think things have to be weighed up. And if you do have the SNPs and you do have the scientific evidence in in a few, we should be using that in, to our advantage to give these personalized recommendations. And my clients love it and mm. have seen huge benefit. I'll know. be honest, like telling someone to reduce their caffeine uh, is not necessarily the most drastic thing. It's not like we're telling them to remove an entire food group or, mm. you know, you can't eat uh, something that's what, I mean, it's, it's just caffeine. And there are many other different types of stimulants out there if you require stimulants. And actually, you know, focusing on other wellness means might be a lifestyle factors rather, might be a, a better way of actually keeping up your energy levels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, out of the SNPs that you use, and first of all, I do commend you on the fact that, you know, you, s- you stand up and you actually say you have to be responsible with these SNPs because what I've noticed with patients, even in the NHS, is that they go to uh, companies, let's say, <laughs> who will do their genomic uh, testing and give them the raw data um, for as little as £100, and they'll plug it into another um uh, sort of algorithm that will match their raw data against all the available SNP um, uh, like studies out there and give them recommendations um, like supplementation um, that are often conflicted, completely conflicting with itself. And without, like you said, the genetic counseling, without someone actually taking a holistic view, without someone like yourself, we actually need more people like you. Um, it can be detrimental not only from a psychological point of view but potentially from a physical and uh a, a medical point of view as well um so yeah i think i think there's an- like you said there's enough evidence for it to be a clinical tool at this point but not enough so it can just be widely distributed yeah. to everyone you're so right and putting emphasis on the fact that it's a tool it's not the be and end all in clinical practice when someone comes in you know, for personalized nutrition advice as a dietitian, I still use my clinical practice that I learned in the hospital regarding making sure that we're taking biochemistry from bloods, we're taking body composition measures into consideration, clinical factors, dietary measures, you know, everything has to put be put into, like you said, a holistic 
kind of bubble and and then a plan put together in accordance with that. So it's not you get a diet based specifically around your nutrigenomic test. Mm. It's that you get a lifestyle and dietary plan mm. based around everything. And, and, and that's what these companies aren't doing. And that's why I'm so passionate about actually educating people in, you know, upcoming teaching. So I'm currently a guest lecturer at the University of St. Mary's in London, and they are actually giving a fantastic masters in nutrition and genetics. And I'm teaching the kind of upcoming nutrition geneticists how to apply this personalized nutrition, specifically nutrigenomics in clinical practice so that they will hopefully when they they um they pass of course no, mm-hmm. they when they qualify yeah. yeah hopefully when they qualify they will be inspired to maybe go and work with some of these companies in order to safely translate this information to patients you know there's there's a role for there's many roles in the area of personalized nutrition for upcoming nutrition and genetics students but hopefully my giving my insights as a, a guest lecturer I can hopefully yeah ins- yeah you can you can inspire them into to practice responsibly because I think it's pretty naive of us as medical practitioners to think well patients are not going to do this on their own if we're not offering it of course they're going to go and do it on their own they're mm. going to I mean I've got patients who are in the NHS and they're doing it they're asking me to yeah. interpret their idea I actually had a patient come in I was working in a a North London practice at the time and uh, came in with his genomic data and was like, can you, can you help me with this? <laughs> I was like, I go, what? <laughs> it's another language. It's Genetics another language, is another yeah. language. I literally had a printout and I was like, I, I, I'm sorry. I really just don't understand. I, I haven't been taught in this. I'm re- and you know, the same thing where, where patients unfortunately just expect general practitioners to know everything about everything. Um, whereas, you know, we're specialized in our fields and we have, we know, uh, a lot about a lot of different things, but not everything in expert detail. And this is why I'm, I'm so excited about this. Um, a lot of people, so, so roughly how many SNPs do you actually test it? How much, like how many do you think there, there is good evidence for? So at the moment in clinical practice, I personally look at 45 genetic markers, okay? okay? Mm-hmm. And of those genetic markers, we test numerous SNPs. Mm-hmm. So it's hard at the moment for me to give you an exact number because things are changing every month. Mm-hmm. But you can be assured if you if you do actually take a test with a trusted professional who has these credentials that they will be using tests that have robust science associated with these SNPs. So I've noticed that amongst some uh, nutrigenomic counselors, they, you, you, you test patients once, but the, as the science evolves, they update what your results actually might mean, right? Are they, Updated results are quite drastic in, cha- in terms of changing the uh, the lifestyle recommendations and, and specifically the dietary mm. recommendations. Good, good question. I think just looking at what's occurring at the moment, it's actually different genetic markers that are coming out. For instance, rather, I mean, obviously, new SNPs are being looked at every, not every day, yeah. but you know, quite often. Recommendations are probably, well, not in the tests 
that I use anyway are not going to change in the recommendations that have been given now. Mm-hmm. According to, so for instance, the 45 genetic markers that I look at the moment look at nutrient metabolism, cardiometabolic health, mm-hmm. weight management, food intolerance, eating habits, and there's a little bit about exercise, okay? Now, when new SNPs are coming up, it's usually because we've found more genetic markers. For instance, at the moment, I don't give recommendations around potassium or magnesium or selenium because there aren't the SNPs at the moment, or at least the University of Toronto don't believe that there are enough robust evidences around those SNPs. Mm-hmm. When they become available, maybe that'll get put in. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, but not necessarily recommendations won't be changed based on markers that have already been. I see what you mean. So it'd be like yeah. an updated panel where you get extra information. Yeah, exactly. Rather than exactly. That drastically changed like, exactly. oh no, you shouldn't be so eating broccoli. In- exactly. <laughs> so for instance, I actually had zinc pop up on one of my tests very recently. Not mine, yeah. uh, but for my patients, mm. they found some more evidence regarding zinc. So mm-hmm. they were happy to put that on my panel. Mm-hmm. Interesting you mentioned weight management because yes. that's what I wanted to ask you about. Because <laughs> I think a lot of people think um, the genomics predetermines whether they're going to be uh, a, a higher weight. And I think most people look at their genetics as a way to um, you know, explain why they've got difficulty yeah. losing weight. Is there some evidence behind that? And, and to, to what extent, I know it's quite hard to put a percentage or quantify it, but to what extent does, do you think genetics play a part in the obesity crisis and the obesity challenge? I think it's a really great subject to bring up because first of all, so many of my clients are coming to me for weight loss solutions, permanent weight loss solutions, mm-hmm. Because let's be honest, people are struggling and it's not their fault. We know that genetics has a huge part to play on obesity and obesity risk, for example. I think there's around when geneticists look at obesity mapping, there's around 600 Mm -hmm. genes that actually have a part to play. Now, a lot of geneticists in the area of obesity would look at what I'm doing, for instance, and maybe think, you know, you don't have any part in giving people recommendations based on their genetics when it comes to obesity. And that comes from a place of them predicting obesity, because at the moment they can only predict around 20% of the gene map, of like the map. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we're trying to do. I'm not trying to predict obesity at all. I'm trying to, or not trying to, I am enabling my clients to really understand how their genes alter the way that they respond to macronutrients. For instance, you know, protein, saturated fat, refined carbohydrates in order that they can make dietary changes according to their genes so that their body composition will improve um, the most, I guess. So So that's fascinating. So um, in terms of someone's uh, genetic markers that you test, you can let to, to, well, I don't want to use the word predict, but you can uh, give them some indication as to whether they will respond favorably or negatively 
to uh, a diet that has differing macronutrient uh, uh, combinations. So let's take two extreme examples, uh, a ketogenic diet that is made up largely of fat with um, small amounts of both protein and carbohydrate, if any carbohydrate at all, versus a, uh, a high carbohydrate vegan diet that has small amounts of fat, um, moderate protein and um, large amount of carbohydrates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so really good point. People respond differently to different diets when it comes to weight loss. And as I just mentioned, we can predict how you will respond and give dietary recommendations accordingly. So when it comes to weight management at the moment, we have markers that are associated with whether someone requires a low fat versus a low carbohydrate diet, a high protein versus a moderate protein diet. And we can touch upon that in a, in a little bit. Whether somebody is required to switch out the type of fat, mm -hmm. so different ratios of unsaturated and saturated to enable better weight loss results around the abdomen. It's really exciting in the field of weight management. Yeah, totally, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's in incredible. And I, I think like, again, instinctively, I know that people respond differently to different diets. This is why, you know, the whole one diet fits all paradigm is just completely bonkers because we know that our our microbes are different. Our genomic history is different. We're going to respond to partitioning fuel in different ways. Uh, it's just sort of normal. And if we can give some inclinations and some, you know, insights into how that might be different for you, then that might be empowering for someone to make those changes. I, I want to get onto the subject of behavioral change and, and how that might be empowering. But um, what, what what are the the SNPs or the genetic markers that you test for in terms of the weight management panel, the, the specific ones? The weight management as in you want the exact SNPs. Oh yeah, I don't need to have them exactly, <laughs> don't worry. I'm not gonna expect you to pull it out, but like the FTO gene I've heard. Yeah, so the FTO gene is something that we do look at. Regarding high protein diets for weight loss, I think this is quite a hot topic, especially with things, you know, like the Atkins diet mm. or just in general, everyone's trying to eat more protein. You see when you're in the supermarket or when you're, you know, grabbing a sandwich, it's got high protein yeah. on, even your peas, you yeah. are talking about yeah. you know, pea pasta, high protein. Yeah. And while that's all well and good, actually, when it comes to a high protein diet, only certain people will actually respond best to that when it comes to weight loss. So there was a really great study that actually looked at the um, FTO gene. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this actually showed that only some people responded to a high protein diet versus others who had the other variation of the gene. So actually some of the variation, sorry, one of the variations yeah. actually just had a kind of normal weight loss response. Okay. And the other variation actually had a really significantly increased weight loss response. So I think it was oh, wow. like 220% increased weight loss response if yeah. you had the variation. Amazing. Following a, a, a high protein diet. So. Wow. So that determines, I mean, like, you know, this whole calorie in, calorie out no. paradigm, this, you know, just, just all about calorie deficit doesn't, it just doesn't stand up no. uh, when we actually get more insights into this. And, you know, we haven't even touched on the microbiota and stuff, but, <laughs> you know, just your genomic uh, uh, um, sequencing will, will determine your destiny in lots of ways, right? 
or determine or it will give you some you know um insight into how you might react to different dietary compositions yeah it's a good point it's almost giving you the insight mm. of there is something that you can do mm. to increase or decrease a health outcome so yeah. for instance you might have a genetic variant that can aid you with your blood pressure if mm. you decrease your salt intake mm. you know that those are actionable steps whereas if you you know have one of these uh, disease risk tests yep. and you have a you know result that says you're at high risk of heart attack some people might think oh well i've got the gene can't yep. do anything about yep. it mm. whereas actually these these recommendations that i'm making are based upon results where you can actually make a change mm. Mm. And, it, and like, so we've talked a bit about like health outcomes for the individual. What about like things like fertility? Are we there yet with any genomic predictions yeah. or things that you can actually heighten people's likelihood of conception? Yeah, it's a really good question. So you probably know as a doctor, we link blood biomarkers to fertility outcomes. Yeah, we know that. We also know that nutrition and genetics, as we talked about today, have a huge impact on blood biomarkers mm. of your nutrient status. Mm. And what the University of Toronto are doing at the moment, I'm actually involved in a review paper, is we're trying to link the nutrition, genetics, the blood biomarkers, and the fertility outcomes oh, wow. together to create a paper. We've finished the female, we're onto the male now. Okay. And it's really exciting because yes, nutrition, genetics, nutrigenomics has a huge part to play in someone's fertility capability, not just women, but also men. Yeah. I think it's, I don't know the exact percentages, like 20 or 30% of all, you know, fertility cases or like or lack of fertility like sub fertility lack, yeah, yeah yeah are based upon men and their sperm motility percentages but yeah mm. um so for instance just just to put things simply something so simple as b12 mm. well some people have a genetic variation men and women which means that they don't transport it very well between the cells and they are predisposed to low levels. And really B12 works with folate to control homocysteine levels and high levels of homocysteine can actually have a negative impact on chance of getting pregnant from a sperm and egg perspective. So yeah, really exciting area. I didn't know that about homocysteine. I'm yeah. aware of homocysteine levels being potentially causative in stroke and cardiovascular risk, but the fertility element, I didn't realize yeah. at all. And that's just one marker that we look at in our fertility test, which I also do with, with clients. I also work with fertility and we can make personalized dietary recommendations for both men and women in order to, for them to basically have optimal nutritional status and, and and have their best chance of getting pregnant so i i find this whole area fascinating because it's giving us some more insights in how simple changes not just the ones that are free or lifestyle changes but even simple supplementation regimes for people who are trying to conceive which is you know emotionally draining the number of parent or potential parents that i've you know come across in general practice that are struggling and in some cases, I'm not too sure if you have any clarity on like how many are, are suffering on, on the basis of something that we potentially have insights into and, and could uh, alleviate with a supplementation regime is quite 
is is just for me phenomenal. And I think, yes, it's definitely in the future, but I, I think there is a premise for responsibly introducing this uh, now with the appropriate um, support mechanisms. What I'm also interested in is um, behavior change. And we touched on this earlier about how, you know, a simple test that will demonstrate whether you're at high risk of uh, inflammation or your um, ability to exercise might be marred if you go too high intensity uh, or your ability to recover or something like that. Like, how have you in your own personal practice noticed um, the genomic testing, new genomic testing has changed someone's behavior? And is there evidence to support that as well? Yeah, good question. So... Yes, it has. Short answer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When people come to me, it's not something that is compulsory to do the nutrigenomic test. Oh, I'm glad you said that because I think most people would just expect like straight away saliva spit in this pot and then I'll see you next week. (laughs) I mean, you know, I brand myself as the DNA dietitian and it's because I am an expert in the area, but it's by all means not something that's compulsory. And it's really important when working with patients, first of all, to uh, get verbal consent and explain the kind of the testing procedure, et cetera. But when it comes, I mean, people come to me for it. Let's be honest. Mm. That's what I'm known for. Mm. They come for those personalized recommendations. And so immediately people who come to me for this are more motivated to make a change. They want to find out about themselves, how best to live a life in accordance with their genes. They're sick of the fad diets, not knowing how to eat, or at least wanting just recommendations that are right for them. So personally, from an anecdotal point of view, I've seen huge benefit for people, you know, when it comes to specifically weight, that's the most visible sign of change from day one when you take the the, the, the saliva test to getting the report back within three, four weeks, giving those recommendations and then following up with that person, seeing how much weight they've lost based upon your personalized recommendations is something that, you know, it's so exciting. But I guess from a more holistic point of view of energy, of overall health. I think people who are coming to me with cardiometabolic disorders, so, you know, high blood pressure, um, risk of of heart disease. I've had huge, huge improvements Mm -hmm. with my patients when I've been able to give them that panel of cardiometabolic markers to say, listen, if you decrease your salt to 13 milligrams a day based around this genetic marker, you're more likely to have a lowered, um, you know, blood pressure. Uh, We need to decrease saturated fat. We need to think about GI index and uh, your caffeine intake. In fact, one guy actually didn't really drink much caffeine at all in his diet. And he was of a variant that would be cardioprotective if he drank between 300 and 400 micrograms a day. So we actually slowly increased, um, sorry, incorporated caffeine into his diet day to day. And his, 
you know, his blood biomarkers improved and his blood pressure improved and his cardiologist was over the moon. (laughs) You know, what have you been doing? And I, you know, I said, I told him to drink some coffee. No, he didn't like coffee, so (laughs) he had to do it with teas. But um, yeah, I've had some really great success stories, let's say. And also myself. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, I, didn't I explained, you, <laughs> you know, we talked about how at the beginning of my university years, I was highly restrictive. Then I started learning about nutrition and started eating in a way of general gui- di- dietary guidelines, which, you know, we all try to do. When I got into the field of nutrigenomics, naturally, I started eating according to my genes in a personalized way that was right for me, right for my health and was going to prevent disease in the future. So from a micronutrient point of view, uh, I was actually predisposed to low levels in vitamin C, Mm -hmm. in B12, in calcium, in, I mean, micronutrient wise, that's all I was predisposed to low levels in. So actually day to day, I consciously ensure that I get my adequate or personalized requirements in those nutrients you know this isn't just from an energy or you know point of view right now to feel great it's from that place of I don't want osteoporosis in the future because my you know I've only been having the 800 900 micrograms of calcium a day that's recommended I need 1300 micrograms right now and 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 that has changed yeah myself I Absolutely. And I think like, you know, one thing I think is, is quite refreshing is that you're not uh, of the mindset like, oh, you need X amount and we'll just give you the supplement and then we'll just yeah. figure it out. Like you take a food focused approach, which definitely resonates with me. I think we can get a lot of the micronutrients that we might be predisposed to lacking through food. But in some cases, you'll need to use supplementation mm-hmm. again responsibly. And with, you know, the intuition and the understanding that we want to try and optimize nutrition as much, uh, mm. much as possible uh, alongside lifestyle as well. Food first, every time. That's, <laughs> yeah. As a dietitian, that's what we're taught. Yeah. And so if someone comes into clinic, the first thing I'll say is, are you taking your 10 micrograms yeah. of vitamin D a day? Yeah, yeah. Great, okay. Well, in a yeah. month's time, when you get your nutrigenomic report back, yeah. depending on your variation, maybe we need to increase that to 25 micrograms. But you're absolutely right. It's always food first and it's important that people also realize that coming to me, mm. you're not just going to get a list of supplements that you need to take based on your genetic report because everything is advice around food unless you can't meet those requirements and then you would potentially need to supplement. Mm. Um, I also just want to mention here about food intolerances mm. because there, I know you've had some great people on the podcast before regarding gut health and who've probably talked about the lack of validity of food intolerance tests I don't know yeah and I have to say I completely agree and don't do it (laughs) (laughs) however the nutrigenomic test we only test for genetic predisposition of risk for gluten intolerance Mm -hmm. and lactose intolerance because those are the only two that we actually have SNPs to prove robust evidence for. And that's not to say that when you are told that you have a slightly elevated risk of a lactose intolerance, like me, I stop eating dairy. Um, I don't have symptoms. So that means I don't need to make, I don't need to take measures to, you know, 
cut that out. So I think a lot of people are quite intuitive about whether they're reacting to different foods these days as well. And and if not, like I try and encourage people to just think about symptoms in terms of doing like a seven day food diary and, you know, uh, just being a bit more sort of aware of like what you're putting in and what might be triggering you. Obviously, I don't have the time in the NHS to go into it in any significant detail. Um, and it's more about empowering people. Um, what I find interesting is like the future of this technology and where it's going and the current skepticism and how you deal with that. Because I can imagine, given that you're pioneering this, you're one of the only only like registered practitioners of this doing it in a responsible way. Um, it must be uh, conflicting for some people who don't really understand what you do on a day-to-day basis. You hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> it is yeah. an area that is almost taboo or mm. a touchy subject for people who don't necessarily understand or haven't seen the evidence. Mm. I think, first of all, what people don't realize is that before I was a dietitian, I did a quite intensive nutrition science, nutritional science masters. Then before then I did a biomedical science. uh, BSc. BSc. (laughs) We touched, didn't just touch upon genetics, but, you know, we did a huge module on it. I then published a paper in genetics. I did all this, uh, you know, further continual professional development afterwards. And that is what's required. You do ideally need training in dietetics or nutrition and genetics Mm -hmm. to be able to safely practice this. And, And you're absolutely right. This isn't an area that people understand and rightly so. Why would people know about genetics if they were in nutrition? It's not something that we're taught. And maybe it's complex and maybe it's a whole new world, but this is a fairly new area you know it's 10 15 years old but we shouldn't be shying away from it and I'm sure people would prefer for someone like me who is trained in this field and also I'm not just trained in the field to a high level I've been I'm also now educating other people at universities Um, surely you would prefer me to be dealing with patients safely translating genetic material amongst all of the other assessment that I've done yeah. than others. Yeah. <laughs> I like how you said others. So it's a very diplomatic of you, you know, but let's say, um, you know, the a young person who has a printout degree by doing a three month course online and then suggesting genomic tests on the basis yeah. of a weekend course. And, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. And to be very honest, it hasn't been widely it, it hasn't been widely accepted, and I haven't had warm receptions mm-hmm. from fellow colleagues or people in the area. It's not something that has has been accepted. And yes, I do feel slightly alone in the industry. Yeah, but I guess I'm I'm doing something that's not in that box that we're told to stay in. <laughs> but if we're not gonna, if I'm not gonna do it, then unqualified professionals, sorry, unqualified non-professionals yeah. are going to take the stand. And I don't want that to happen because that means that the 
public safety is at risk. So the the courses that you run and the guest lectures that you do, yeah. um, who are they geared at? Are they, are they geared at yeah. other healthcare professionals or are they good, layperson? Or? Good question. So at the moment, I we touched on it before. I actually was trained by the, a leader in research a professor at the University of Toronto. He trained me in nutrigenomics along with Monash University. At the moment, I'm a guest lecturer at St. Mary's University in London. And that is basically teaching applied personalized nutrition to upcoming gen- uh, nutrition and genetic professionals. I've also got a upcoming online course for nutrition professionals and also medical professionals. So doctors, nurses, nutritionists, you know, dietitians, teaching them all about nutrition and genetics. And I've also got a course coming out for everyone else who wants to understand in an easy to understand, fun way about genetics, about nutrition, about nutrigenomics, about how you can start eat, eating according to your genes, taking control, and also be able to read a report. Yeah. So I teach people how to read through their reports uh-huh. and make actionable lifestyle choices accordingly. Brilliant. So I'm really excited for that to come out. What well, one word of advice I think about like um, uh, softening the approach with colleagues that might be skeptical is holding open days, um, perhaps like a, a lecture series where you bring yourself and a few other guests who can actually educate on the utility, where the pitfalls are in the technology, what the future might hold and how to utilize this um, uh, technology responsibly. Because I think um, the reason people um hate on each other or are skeptical is in a lot of cases out of ignorance and if you actually welcome people into the space i think it's a lot better it's one thing that i've learned through doing the culinary medicine um non-profit uh, that we're, we're running in medical schools and for qualified professionals i knew from the get-go that you know a doctor with no nutrition qualification who has somewhat of a presence on Instagram (laughs) and has written a book is not going to be widely received, um, well-received, I should say, by the wider nutrition community that I respect so highly. And so creating a collaborative organization where we work together is perhaps one of the, the best things I could have done, but the most obvious thing to do if my mission is to try and, uh, help, nutrition come into the curricula in a in a way that's actually uh, promoting of the of the different specialties in the multidisciplinary team so my two cents and i don't like to give advice for it, it's unwarranted no, please is, do. Please is that do. i think you know actually involving your colleagues more in terms of all the stuff that you're doing in terms of guest lecturing but actually tailoring it more to the skeptics would be a really nice way of disarming it and actually you know taking your position as the the pioneer in this um field because it's definitely going to be the norm in the next five to ten years i can imagine from just what you've just told me you're you're so right and that's really helpful advice and i think it'll get to a point where genetic testing is also so cheap as in it'll almost be free it's already it's already pretty damn cheap right yeah um so i think that you're absolutely right it will be used in clinical practice in most areas and i think that even the the nhs will be well they're already they're already on that aren't they yeah 
Yeah. I mean, somewhat, someone quite high up is also on the scientific advisory board of one of the companies that I work with from the NHS. So, you know, it's, it is the future. It isn't the future. It's the now, you know, is personalized nutrition the future? No, because it's now. It's here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is here. We, we have enough. <laughs> we start giving enough. recommendations. We yeah. shouldn't wait any longer. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I think to summarize, <laughs> we talked a lot about the science, a lot about the different utility of markers. And, you know, I think it's absolutely fascinating. I definitely think there's legs for it. And I think the, the, the technology is here now. A skeptic or someone might say, okay, well, is there, you know, is there evidence that it's actually going to lead to behavior change? Is there, you know, is this a useful tool to do now? And do we really need genetic tests like this? Mm. Well, I talked to you about some of my own clients actually mm. finding a huge benefit from having the test when it came to being motivated to make a change and, you know, maybe giving personalized recommendations based around people following them more because it's coming from a place of maybe ego, mm. like, oh, this is information about me. So of course I'm going to follow it because I know it's going to work. When you look at the scientific literature, there was a great study that was published comparing recommendations that were pretty standard versus personalized recommendations based around nutrigenomic analysis that were translated into easy to understand formats. With like a counselor or someone? Yeah, with okay. a nutrition counselor. And I think it was a randomized control. Okay. Mm -hmm. It was a really high quality study. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that the people who actually received the personalized nutrition and meaning the nutrigenomic information about themselves were much more engaged in the learning mm. and took a greater interest in in their health and in their reports. But what was interesting is they were actually more likely to follow the dietary recommendations than those who were given just general recommendations based around guidelines, but also for a long period of time. So when they followed up a year later, I think it was a year or two years later. Because that was going to be my next question. Like, yeah. okay, fair enough. They might've done it for like a Initially, month or two months, but like how long did that last? Yeah. So I think at, at the year mark, they were kind of asked again, are you, are you following this or not? And those who were following the personalized recommendations versus the standard were following it mm -hmm. and following it for the longest. Mm -hmm. And specifically, mostly in the blood pressure and okay. salt. So those who were told that they have a genetic predisposition to salt-sensitive hypertension were more likely to be following this low-sodium diet. And well, why that is important is, well, those people were the ones that needed it yeah. the most. Yeah. You know, hypertension, you know, high blood pressure is a risk factor for heart disease. And these people were following this advice based around their genetic report much more than those who had just been told we should be, yeah. you know, lowering our salt mm -hmm. to, what is it, six grams yeah, six a grams day. Yeah, six yeah. But, you know, that, that's, that's huge implication to the reason why personalized nutrition is definitely something that people should be thinking about to motivate them to make a change. Yeah. You know, it's not just about them, but they've also paid money. Yeah. Definitely. They've invested in their health. Mm. And while these tests range in cost, people spend that on a pair of trainers, mm. you know, or 
you know, other areas of their lives. So the only issue I think with health practitioners accepting the fact that, you know, it is an investment in their health is that if it's a true investment in their health, and we've definitely talked about the validity of a lot of these tests. And I think it's going to take a bit of a rebranding of nutrigenomics mm -hmm. in general to rid itself of the, the sort of cloud of, you know, um, perhaps some uh, unsavory, commercially motivated interests of, of industry just targeting consumers directly. Um, but that being said, you know, if it's done in a responsible way, how much could someone um, expect to pay to have a qualified genetic counselor, someone like yourself, and a genomic test? Like how much is actually this going to cost um, someone? And I definitely see the benefits if, you know, there's evidence to suggest that people will be able to keep up with the recommendations for over a year. Mm. That's fantastic. Mm. I think that for a good quality test, you can be looking from anything from, say, 160 to maybe 200 pounds. Oh, sign me up. For the test. <laughs> yeah. To have that translated by a nutrition professional, depending on the um the type of person whether that be a doctor in say the nhs mm -hmm. it could be free mm -hmm. if that doctor has been trained in in nutrigenomics if you are going to someone in private practice you could pay for their consultation their time mm -hmm. or you could buy it as part of a package mm -hmm. so a lot of the time my clients come to me because they want to improve their health or they want to lose weight or they want to improve their you know their digestive health for instance like i said that would be part of the assessment phase so i don't like to think of things as you you're just coming in to find out this information it's yeah. it's part of a holistic approach yeah. to your health or weight loss yeah and that's why i think it's fantastic that someone like yourself who is nutrition training registered dietitian and the nutrigenomic uh, element as well it's just like this complete package it's almost like you know having regular doctors with a nutrition training and a holistic sort of mindset we need more <laughs> of that and you know you're one of many that i think are going to start populating um the healthcare system so good on you mate thank you Thanks really so appreciate much you for coming on me. and sharing it honestly like yeah. sharing your story sharing the background i think it's going to be super useful for listeners and actually you know i'm tempted as well i think i'm probably gonna look through my genomic history and and see if there are any things that I can tinker with just to optimize it. Maybe we can discuss it over a long black. <laughs> Is it a long black? Did I get it right? Yeah, a long black? It right. It's a long black. <laughs> <laughs>I hope you agree that was a fascinating conversation with Rachel she is a breath of fresh air and I really think dietetics and medicine is going to be incorporating a lot more nutrigenomic analysis when it comes to giving personalized recommendations for people about food to round up we talked about epigenetics the basics of what a gene is the differences between different nutrigenetic tests what determines disease risk versus modifier gene tests so the types of tests that uh, Rachel would do would be ones that something that you can do about with regards to lifestyle and diet and making specific recommendations on those please do check out the podcast show notes page where all of Rachel's links are on social media plus her clinic and you can check out a bit more information about her on her own website too I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I will see you here next week. Until then, stay well. Sign up to the newsletter for daily recipe for weekly recipes and uh, I'll catch you here next week.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.